Welcome. <clears throat> Ugh. Excuse me. Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, which is a tagline that gives us a veneer of beautiful legitimacy. And we're on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto or in some much-appreciated community radio stations around the country. Or on, you know, your podcast website, whatever you might uh, click those on. I don't know how the technology works. I think Stefan does or someone. I don't know. I'm David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter. I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour, and it's a podcast app, just so you know. Nobody uses a podcast website. Let me dust off my papyrus texts and dive into the environmental news. We have many environmental climate stories because Stefan has no interview this week, but we do have a dense load of beauty, uh, if I may use that terminology. But first, Stefan wants to talk about the glories of the human imagination because he is uh, just bursting. And Lauren wanted to complain about a couple of celebrities. And then I was going to mention a uh, correction that a wonderful listener gave us on Facebook. So we'll do that before getting into the news. No, I just wanted to mention very, very briefly off the top, because Dave and I, if you tuned in last week, were like gently kind of like singing the praises of Don't Look Up, that climate change movie that's on Netflix that everybody's talking about. Um, And then this week, much to my chagrin and disappointment, we heard about how Leonardo DiCaprio spent New Year's Eve with Jeff Bezos on a super yacht which for what it's worth is a vessel that I didn't even know existed until people started talking about them a couple months ago when like stories came out about how like super yachts are like a not insignificant contributor to climate change in comparison to like the rest of like my my daily operations, for instance. And anyway, like it's just, it's annoying. It's stupid. And the moral of the story is that like there is no such thing as a good rich person because even somebody who like quote unquote like gets it like Leo who's like, prided himself and like built a brand off of like being the guy in Hollywood who cares about climate change and he has his foundation and he goes to cop and he he pushes himself to the front lines of various climate marches and stuff like that um clearly he doesn't totally get it because like I mean on this show we always talk about how like climate action isn't like down to like your individual lifestyle choices but when you're I googled this when you're worth 230 million dollars and your buddies with the richest man on earth, like, yeah, your individual choices do have very real planetary consequences. So, I mean, like, I know it's being angry at a celebrity is like an exercise in futility, but I was just sort of like, ugh, just kind of miffed, kind of annoyed about the whole thing. So if Leo happens to be listening, shame on you, man. Shame on you. <laughs> the biggest thing I think celebrities could do is bully people with super yachts. Really, like, don't even make any more movies. Just spend your time and all your social capital bullying people with super yachts and make them not cool. You are celebrities. You have your half of you are called influencers at this point. Influence people out of super yachts, and then we can talk about whether or not we'll let you into our climate movement. Think of the good that somebody like Leo could do if he decided instead of pointing his efforts even at the general public, just like pivoting to other rich people and other celebrities, because like rich people don't give a, um, they don't care what I have to say or you, or even like the, the media at large, the only other people they listen to are other rich people because like they can speak the same language. They have shared experiences. So like, yeah, put your money where your mouth is and then 
point that mouth towards i don't know other people with money yeah i mean that, that works all right we'll stick with it anyway we've got it we've got it over to you uh, and and the bright shining future of our dreams yeah. i just i'm a year behind in beginning to read the ministry of the future for those who don't know it is a fiction book by oh he's forgotten the name of the author I mean, his name is Kim something. Oh, my goodness. He's Googling it. Kim Stanley Robinson. The book basically picks up in 2024 and then carries forward into the future and sort of follows climate destruction along with people trying to actually take action and change things. But what it got me thinking about a little bit also is a article that we might have talked about previously by uh, Mary Heglar called To Build a Beautiful World, You First Have to Imagine It. And it's about the importance of artists and that importance and need to actually bring imagination and world building, which is mostly used in a term of, you know, of science fiction and of fantasy of actually building worlds and coming into how they make sense. But bringing that imagination into our world and actually imagining different worlds is so necessary in terms of how, if we can get out of this, because we're not going to get out of this using, I guess, the obvious growth of where we're at now. Like you can't imagine the things we have all right now going to the nth degree, that doesn't solve our problems, right? Like you cannot solve these problems without something new and totally different. And so the need to have imagination in artists and, and world building thought processes within our movements and within our actions, I think. I love that. And just like how last week I ended up quoting Carl Sagan. I'm going to end up doing it again today. Just much, much shorter. Oh it reminded, goodness. Oh my God. It's only going to be like one line, but it's because again, at the beginning of pale blue dot, he dedicates the book to his son, adorable. And he says, I remember reading this when I read this book this past summer. And it like, I like wept openly in a park because um, it says for Sam, another wanderer, may your generation see wonders undreamt. And it's like, I, I, it made me so sad because I was like, geez, instead of new generations seeing wonders undreamt, they're seeing like horrors that you never could have possibly conceptualized. But, but no, I do think it's important to like, continue, like you said, to, to continue to sort of like dream and push the limits of our imaginations and conceptualize these new futures. Because like, we know from like, I don't know, the push we've seen in recent years and decades for like better representation on screen and in fiction, it's, it's really hard to to start working towards anything if you can't first see it visualized for yourself or represented in some capacity. So if we don't start like imagining and visualizing this like climate safe, livable future, then how can we possibly expect, then how can we possibly build it? Especially when increasingly you're going to have generations of new kids that are being born and growing up and working that like weren't alive to see some of the amazing like wonders of the natural world that even even I or even you might have grown up seeing so I yeah, like that sure. I think that's a good it's a good ethic to carry forward into 2022 excellent and I'll, I'll throw to Dave uh, for the correction of me in a second but if I can just bring us back in a little bit of circle if I had to put a direction towards where I think we need to see climate uh art going at, you know, don't look up was this whole thing I talked about last week, and we just talked about it again. But that's sort of the disaster version. Let, what about the other version, right? What about the the climate future stories that are us doing stuff and trying to make this better in spite of all these things? You know, like I think it, people always talk about how hard it is to like, move about climate change, but I think there's a a real opportunity to make stories about imagining these worlds where we have begun to tackle this and and how these things fall out and how we manage to interplay there. But why don't you correct me and then we'll dive into the news. 
Right, yeah. So there was a listener who contacted us on Facebook a week ago about our New Year's Eve show in which we said that Jeff Bezos's flight was equal to one billion people's lifetime emissions. And many different outlets or many different people also interpreted one researcher's uh, statement to be that exact thing. But in fact, Jeff Bezos's space flight uh, was 75 tons of CO2 emissions per passenger, which is equal to the lifetime emissions of one individual in the bottom one billion emitters in the world. So each person who went on that flight released as many emissions in that those 11 minutes as one billion people will in their lifetimes, not one billion people combined. All right, so now we're going to take a music break and come back and dive into the environmental news. majority continues with its news what's the new news music sound like is it like it's new analysis this is fresh new analysis from bloomberg new energy finance suggests that close to one-fifth of all power lines around the world could easily succumb to climate disasters to the coming climate disasters and utility companies in the united states alone could start losing 4.1 billion dollars a year from climate impacts if they start losing that much money many people in the u.s will find it difficult to afford electricity since top utilities in the u.s received around one and a quarter billion dollars of pandemic relief money from the government in 2020 in 2020 but they still cut people's power the Center for Biological Diversity and Bailout Watch wrote back in September, quote, Utilities wielded political power to secure beneficial tax code changes in the CARES Act, but defied calls to grant their own customers temporary relief. Instead, 16 utilities suspended or canceled electric service to nearly 1 million households between February 2020 and June 2021 leaving people without hot water, refrigeration, air conditioning, and medical devices while the pandemic raged. They also reported at the time, quote, nine companies received tax bailouts totaling $1.12 billion. It would have cost just 9.4% of that bailout total to prevent every shutoff reported. For what taxpayers spent bailing them out, 16 companies could have forgiven all unpaid accounts hundreds of times over in some cases. According to Bailout Watch, these utilities are responsible for around a third of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Public utilities are the only path forward. 
you know, time and time again, we are shown that if you leave something in the hands of a private business, you know, they will do what is best for their investors and those who they make rich. You, know, you saw this in California when after they got sued for the forest fires, they decided just to basically deny huge swaths of their population power because they didn't want to get sued again. You saw it in Texas after multiple different uh, extreme weather events when the price of natural gas skyrocketed and they basically bankrupted some people because they decided they could charge you this amount of money. And these are people who are trying to stay alive in the winter. And it's only going to become increasingly important as these extreme weather events turn power outages into a death sentence. You know, the reason why the people in Texas couldn't just stop using power was because it was in well below freezing. They would have frozen to death. And so what you're saying is that the power utility has the ability to basically just say, we are going to bankrupt you or you die, which again, United States healthcare system is like, hello, we do this all the time, but these are not good systems that we should be trying to emulate here. If caring about power utilities and accessibility of things like air conditioning or heating isn't something you necessarily think is a big pressing issue right now, I would really encourage you to check out a book that everybody was talking about a couple of years ago. Um, it's the David Wallace Wells one. Oh, an uninhabitable earth. And there's like, he has a whole chapter on the phenomenon of heat death, where it will be too hot for people to be outside for any period of time. And you will succumb to the elements. Like we, we think it's important now for people to have access to like relatively affordable power and for those grids to be robust and for that to be, um, controlled and handled in, 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 relative, in the relatively responsible hands of government as opposed to like private companies that will, that will only become more and more important as the years go on. And as these, like you said, as these weather phenomena grow increasingly stronger. No, yeah, for sure. No, it, it, the wet bulb temperature is the thing that if it gets to it, wet bulb 35 is this temperature where I think it's I think it's the temperature that a ball a electricity bulb will become, but basically it's a temperature that sweat stops being effective. It's what's measured from a thermometer soaked in a wet rag. Okay, yeah. right. But what ha what's happening when it hits that wet bulb thirty five is what your sweat stops actually cooling you down at all, and so your body has zero ability to cool itself down, meaning that you will die within some very short amount of time, even in the shade. This is why utilities have to remain public or at least responsive to people. People have to be able to vote out their utility. Like if their utility leaves them to die, people have to be able to vote out someone so it doesn't happen again. That like has got to be a low, it's, it's a low bar, but I think it's a bar we have to see in the next coming hundred years or else we're just going to let people die. A new report from NOAA in the U.S. has found that climate and weather disasters cost that country 
$145 billion in 2021, and they were hit with 20 different billion-dollar disasters. Uh, defense attorneys, moving on to line three, pipeline. Defense attorneys for line three activists in Minnesota are arguing that the felony charges brought against the activists are an abuse of power. Some of these activists who have been fighting the Enbridge pipeline were charged with felony theft for chaining themselves to equipment, while others were charged with felony aiding attempted suicide for crawling into sections of the incomplete pipeline. The Intercept reports that County Attorney Jonathan Frieden, who is pursuing these charges against the activists, asked Enbridge for money to help them prosecute 400 of these cases. Every time we get to another story about the connection between police or the prison system being funded or paid for in any way by companies, I feel like we're sliding just a little bit further towards a very scary space. And I apologize, the rest of this rant is not the magical place I began this episode on. In this case, what we're being told is that the legality of the actions of these 400 people is at least in part determined by how much money Enbridge decides to put up. This is not a justice system. It is a system of paid incarceration. And yes, I know there are thousands of examples of the failings of the prison system, but that doesn't mean that each instance should be ignored. And lest we pretend that this is a uniquely American problem, remember that just a few weeks ago, CN Rail won the right to privately prosecute blockaders who were protesting in support of Wet'suwet'en, which is a situation where peaceful protests that the state determined they were not going to press charges could now be brought to court by a private company. And they could then be sent to prison, which the public would then pay for despite the fact that the attorneys themselves argued that it was not in the public interest to press charges. I simply cannot see how this system squares itself with how we're taught to believe the rule of law works. If CN Rail didn't have the money to prosecute these bull, then what they did would be determined, quote unquote, not illegal. And yet they can pay as much money as they want to try to turn that into, to use their power of profit to turn these actions into something that should be charged and stuck with them. It'd be, it'd be criminal records. They'd be, you know, this would follow them the rest of their lives. How much money you have should never determine your ability to get someone else to go to jail. And if it does, then we have simply removed the last remaining shred of the facade that we are ruling our society by those we elect rather than those who have the most money. This last sort of point about um, the Intercept reporting that county attorney Jonathan Frieden, who's pursuing these charges against the activists, has has asked Enbridge for twelve thousand dollars to help them prosecute four hundred of these cases. Is that is that normal for like a county attorney who is I don't know county attorney? I assume you're employed by the state or the county, like you're a government official asking a company for money so they can then bring charge. Anyway, I'm, I was really confused by that. So did you happen the, to find anything about that in your reading and research? Is that uh, a normal the, action? I don't know how normal it is, but in this case, there's a joint account. So there's a, there's a, there's an account of money that Enbridge has put in to help this Minnesota carry out the whole pipeline production and, and so forth. And then 
after the fact. That was that was to police the production and, and whatever to to have train security, train police, equip them in some cases. After the fact, this attorney has has uh, asked Enbridge has tried to bill. So they sent he sent an invoice to Enbridge, being like, I need to hire all of these people to help process these cases. So he asked for twelve thousand dollars to help. Uh, the people that he had hired to just do the do paperwork, and Enbridge denied that request. And he and his claim afterwards was was of course that uh, their processing and prosecuting of these cases was not dependent upon that money. He was just attempting to get Enbridge to help pay for that process. Right. Meanwhile, Enbridge, like, sorry to confirm, Enbridge had already given the county money to perform those arrests in the first place to to train police. And to purchase some of their equipment, yeah. Mm, that shouldn't be allowed. I don't know about that one. I mean, none of this should be allowed, right? Like, that's my thing. Like, I guess, like, it's the fact that private companies are paying this, like, it just makes them arms of the private companies, right? That's it. Like, the CN Rail one is, I think, arguably more egregious than this case. This case is the way to get me, you know, like, but none of these are good, right? This, none of, the, all of this is very bad. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. I don't want that. <laughs> Change it back. I give, make it yeah, different. I, <laughs> I give this five Leos out of seven um, on a scale, and seven Leos are the worst, I think, in my opinion. I don't know. All right, next two stories. So a North Dakota court has ruled that energy transfer, now this is the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline, will not be allowed to keep its security documents secret. So this means a journalist has filed, Aline Brown filed this request, and so the judge has ruled that the entirety of the 16,000 documents regarding the company's relations with the private security firm Tiger Swan and their violent attacks against activists at Standing Rock should be made public. Although the companies are pouring money into the process to appeal and delay as long as possible. This judge's ruling is good. No Leos on a super yacht out of seven. (laughs) Um, And Ontario. So moving on now to Canada. Ontario is on track. This this is from a report from last month. Ontario is on track to increase its emissions from electricity generation by 375% by 2030 relative to 2017 levels since we're planning to rely heavily on natural gas. So we're planning to triple the share of natural gas in electricity by the late 2040s. The Hamilton Spectator reported in December, quote, the plan to greatly expand the role of gas-fired generation arrives as North American natural gas prices are showing a dramatic rise from their recent historic lows. That can only translate into higher electricity costs for Ontario consumers. The strengthened federal carbon price regime proposed before last fall's election could push the cost of gas-fired generation even higher. So not only are the increases are the, are the emissions increasing, but maybe maybe the electricity price will also increase. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you've seen to talk about the way, the volatility of natural gas pricing. That's what happened in Texas. That's what's happening in Europe. The, the idea that natural gas will give you non-fluctuating prices is not the case. Uh, but my, my one thought here is very quick, which is that the Ford government, they've got, a, they've got a new environment minister who is on record saying things like, we, aren't, we, shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be judged by what we did in 2018, 2019. 
and we care about the climate, I promise. And I'm sorry, but no. People who are listening, who are paying any attention to the 18 will remember the huge swaths of, elect- of renewable electricity that were canceled by the Ford government uh, at, at a cost to us. Taxpayers lost tons of money on these things. We had to pay out like penalties because we canceled them so late. And that would empower, that would have replaced the power that these things are going to build right now. It is unconscionable that we are putting ourselves in this scenario where we are going to be more reliant. And it, that's causing problems all through the board. I know that the city of Toronto, one of the biggest issues that the city of Toronto is having right now is how do they manage to get de- uh, significant decarbonization when their power keeps coming from an increasingly more carbon intensive grid? So, so it's not, you know, it's the, the issues and decisions that are being made by the provinces impact the ability of more local governments to actually take action on climate change as well. And so this is a, yeah, don't trust the Ford government. If they let this happen, this is a huge abdication of the responsibility. That's all I got. No, that's just, it's just such a bummer because I mean, when I remember we like, if you did any sort of work in either like municipal or provincial level, um, like climate policy around 2018, around 2019, setting aside the fact that everybody was incredibly depressed because so many jobs were cut because, because of Ford, but like there, you, you saw that, um, there was a dip in, or there was a decrease in emissions once, um, sort of like the, it wasn't powering past coal, but like once, once Ontario started getting off of, off of coal. Um, and like, that was so uplifting for so many, it was like, Oh, awesome. We're finally starting to see some progress. We're finally starting to see a decrease in emissions. How great is that? And, and I don't know, I haven't actually looked at it, but, but I assume if, if just the, if, if electricity is set to increase its emissions by 375%, that's going to have an increase on overall emissions. I don't, maybe not by that same amount, but like to a considerable degree. So it, I don't know, it's just a huge bummer. Cause even just a couple of years ago to see that decrease was really heartening and really exciting. And like, I think people felt like it was like a, it was like a good omen, a sign of the times to come and apparently not. Well, yeah, one of Ford's, one of Ford's excuses at the beginning to not do more renewable stuff was like, oh, we've already, we're already producing all like, we're already entirely renewable. And, but yeah, it was, um, but then, of course, he turns around and does the natural gas. But yeah, it was it was like seven hundred and fifty eight small uh, renewable projects that he canceled immediately, and then one completed wind farm, and it cost us around two hundred and thirty million dollars, I think. Yeah, and don't let anybody ever tell you that renewable natural gas is a thing. It's not. It's <laughs> it it is it is as real as clean coal, which is to say, not real at all. So let's get some sponges in those pipes. As a quick aside, just so people know, the attempts to capture coal have, we haven't covered them too super often, but like the most recent one was the most effective they had, one they created only captured 40%. And I think most of them in the States completely failed. Like there's, the States tried a bunch of them, like $1.1 billion of of this kind of carbon capture uh, from coal and have high many sources and they're just an immense failure across the board. Yeah, we tend not to talk about CCUS just because it feels like a stupid waste of time. Yeah. Like not but, only for for the discourse, but just like as an effort in general. It's yeah, a waste. Just don't, yeah, just don't burn coal or fossil fuels. That's the it. That's it. That's, that's the option. All right. So now we're going to take a music break and come back with more news.
Green Majority has returned from its music break. And we're continuing with climate news discussion. Uh, so in Wet'suwet'en, water protectors have performed a strategic retreat from Coyote Camp to avoid arrest as RCMP mobilized on their territory on behalf of Coastal Gaslink. A recent analysis put together for the energy mix argues that the BC NDP will be haunted by the CGL pipeline. Uh, the analysis quotes Anjali Apadurai of Sierra Club as saying, quote, In the short term, stopping the pipeline and the legal backlash that would ensue is a matter of political courage, and it comes down to a moral choice. There are very stark choices we have to make when we leave the extractivist model behind, and stopping the pipeline project is one of those milestones. She also said, quote, We have put in place partnerships and systems that undermine our democratic structures and prevent them from working in the long-term interests of people and the planet, which it unfortunately falls upon the current generation of leaders to remedy and undo. But the NDP government is not acting differently than any other party would under these circumstances. Citing the rising costs of the pipeline project and the unpredictability of the market, Seth Klein is quoted in the article as arguing that it may not even matter to the companies and investors involved whether the pipeline itself is ultimately profitable since it's being run by a consortium of interests who can pay less tax if they report losses. So if one of their projects is bad, they can, they can uh, reduce the expenses on another because of that. And the consortium includes both the sellers and the buyers of the liquid natural gas. So it's just this amazing insular network of people. It's, 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 a, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a, a market outside of the market. These markets are not working. These markets are not working. Anyway, the, so a federal court, the next story, a federal court has rejected an eco-justice lawsuit that was trying to reverse Ottawa's permission of exploratory oil and gas drilling off Newfoundland and Labrador. So there will be some exploratory uh, drilling there. And, the Europe and European airline companies and their regulators are blaming each other for the tens of thousands of empty flights that companies are carrying out. Very few people are flying right now because of the Omicron variant. But airlines are running thousands of flights with no passengers because they are forced to maintain their schedules under current rules. If European airlines don't maintain 50% of their pre-pandemic level flights, they could lose their slots if, it, if a lot of people start flying again. Yeah, we covered that one story about the beginning of the pandemic, people stopped flying and they did the exact same thing. It's mind blowing to me. They didn't fix this problem. Like at that moment when that was happening the first time would have been the time to change the rules where people would not have to do this again. And yet this is the world we live in, right? This is the, this is the world of just marching towards our own demise because you can't even imagine a different world where planes don't have to fly empty. Talk about a lack of imagination. All you have to imagine a world is where if you don't have anyone to fly in your flight, you don't fly. And I'm sure there's like some extra complication here about making money for the airports or something, but come on. Like it's, it, it the connection here for me is with the secondary part I was going to mention briefly, which is just the fact that like, I'm at this point truly wondering 
when and where we will see truly brave leadership on climate change in a Canadian context. Because in the same way that I'm blown away that the airplanes and airplane companies can't figure this out, the BC NDP was set up in a prime position to show the country what real leadership could look like and to contrast itself with the federal liberals. And yet, instead, it appears that their positions are nearly identical, both marching towards, again, our demise, because they cannot imagine anything different. Just a crisis of leadership and a crisis of imagination all wrapped up into a couple different stories. But to you, Lauren. Um, I was just going to say, like, I think like Dave, you had that first story where you were talking about how it's like, these markets don't work anymore. These markets are broken or whatever, but it's like, and then you go down a little bit to the European airline story about companies having to fly their planes. And it's like, that's, that's it in action because I'm sure like, this is the one time where I think I'm not actually all that mad at the actual airlines themselves, because I'm sure, I don't know. It sounds like they wouldn't be flying these planes if they didn't have to under this regulation, because flying a plane is expensive. You have to pay for the staff. You have to pay for the gazillion gallons of, I don't know, whatever the airline jet fuel or whatever. Like I'm, it's an expensive prospect that I'm sure if they didn't have to, they would, they, they just, they wouldn't do it, but they have to because of this regulator. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure the whole reason they have to keep them going is like the regulator claims it's because they have to keep their slots at the airport. I'm sure what it actually comes down to is that these people have contracts with various jet fuel companies that they have to, and they have to like use a minimum amount of jet fuel or whatever in order to not breach their contracts. Anyway, it's, that is, that is a perfect example of a market not functioning properly because, oh, I don't know. In this instance, it's the regulator and it's the oversight body that's interfering in a way that isn't helpful i don't know am i a conservative now yeah they're trying to make the market i think predictable with the scheduling because it's like if your company falls apart then you have to be kicked out of your slot time slot because then other people are going to take that spot i guess but they just never planned for maybe people not flying as much you know (laughs) didn't plan for that it seems like it's such an easy fix just loosen the regulation at this time so pe- so airlines don't have to fly empty planes all the time in order to maintain their status at these airports. Yeah. I don't know. It's stupid. This is all stupid. We talk yeah, about a... too much stupid stuff on this show, you guys. We need well, to everything, with... it's... everything is stupid now. You just have to accept that. Like the there's no one no one is governing this thing. Like they're just they're they've hollowed out the governing system and it's just all these companies just with contracts and Nobody's manning the thing. It's just roll on. At least a solid four DiCaprio's out of seven for this one. Maybe even six. We're trapped in an autonomous Tesla and it's not going well. (laughs) Let me out. This computer has locked the doors on me.
Okay, so uh, the Inequality Lab put out a report recently that found that the world's wealthiest 10% are responsible for almost half of all the world's emissions, while the poorest 50% are responsible for only 12% of the world's emissions. Maria Paula Rubiano A. highlights for Grist, quote, After analyzing the policy decisions that countries have taken to address climate change, the authors found that they have disproportionately affected the middle and lower classes. Therefore, the rich are trying to fix climate change by further squeezing the poor. But the divide isn't ultimately or entirely between rich countries and poor countries, but between the international rich and the poorer people in every country. George Monbiot recently pointed out that one person's mega yacht produces 3,000 times as much CO2 in a year as one person's yearly carbon budget should be for everything that they do. Of course, as highlighted by the recent COP26, wealthier countries are, prior- are prioritizing defending their borders from migrants and refugees rather than fixing the climate crisis that is creating more refugees. In addition, if we consider ourselves responsible only for the missions we create within our own countries, we justify oppressing people to make ourselves comfortable because we are exporting our emissions to other countries while asking those same countries to reduce their emissions while still supplying us with with the stuff that we want. Relatedly, the Green Resilience Project in Canada has come out in support of a basic income as central to comprehensive climate policy, writing, quote, We need community resilience to meet the challenges of climate change, and we need income security to build strong, healthy communities equipped with the tools they need to take action. Now, in in plastic news, finally... Canada plans to ban certain plastic grocery bags, styrofoam containers, and various single-use plastic items by the end of the year, but not all single-use plastics. A Beyond Plastics report from last year suggested that greenhouse gas emissions from the plastics industry could rise above that of coal production by 2030, <clears throat> calling, the new coal, calling plastic the new coal and the last gasp of the fossil fuel industry. Coal power, meanwhile, is on track to hit an all-time high this year, according to the IEA. And the plastics, in, the plastics industry in the U.S., meanwhile, is fighting whole hog against a Biden proposal to tax virgin plastic resin at $0.10 cents a pound. The industry is threatening to pass the costs on to consumers if the tax is imposed, even though they have seen skyrocketing profits in the last couple years. This would be possible because the industry is dominated by a tiny number of companies, and they all help each other. Finally, the UN recently reported that plastic use in farming has caused there to be more microplastic pollution in the soils than there is in the oceans. Given the amount of time we've had to spend talking about mega yachts and super yachts this episode, and with the statistics that we were shown where the world's wealthiest 10% are responsible for half of the world's emissions. We've spot, we've spoken, we've talked for years about how we need to eat the rich. And I feel like it's time 2022. We're dreaming big. We're doing new and exciting things to try to rein in climate change and turn this big old ship around. And I think, I think it's finally time to start eating people because 
this is trash. And I honestly don't know how else we're going to get, I I don't know how else we're going to do it other than like, I don't know. We don't condone violence here, but like, there's a reason the French revolution was so successful. Just think about the succulent omega threes that are definitely resting in the brown fats of the DiCaprios who consume their swordfish sushi. Mm, delicious. It's like, what? what's that food that you, it's the goose liver that's like really, it's like foie gras, mm. but like rich people <laughs> foie gras. <laughs> Give me rich people liver. Come on. Uh, what it will, one thing it was, so, so yeah, I'm going to bring it all the way back. I'm going to go all the way back to uh, the Ministry of the Future, which is this book that I am reading. Because in it, it, it does sort of tackle this question of 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 violence and of sort of more uh of of much more like there basically becomes a ton of ecoterrorism in the future that's part of this book is like a bunch of ecoterrorism starts happening but part of the conversation and justification of that is the fact that like well if you were from the future like someone makes this case in this book i'm sorry it's early on in the book people i'm not ruining the book for you um but somewhere earlier on in this they're like, look, you're the ministry of the future. The idea is this, is this ministry that's meant to look after the people in the future. And they're like, look, if you were actually from the future and you knew that the billions and billions and billions of people in the future are all are dying and they're doing very poorly because of climate change, overall climate change. When you came to now, you would take, you would probably declare war on us, right? Like, like truly you like, you would right like the hitler baby thought experiment thing i mean if you could go back in time would you kill a hitler baby similar but more so just like like but on a kind of a global scale i guess like you know a question of like look if we right now and those right now who are knowingly destroying things they are also then knowingly really harming the future generations like they are truly killing future generations um, quite directly in all the horrendous ways we talked about in the show. And man, the show went real dark. I apologize to everybody. Um, but, but that is a, 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 a piece of a question that I think like, like David Suzuki got absolutely lambasted, not lambasted like a couple months ago for saying that someone was going to blow up a pipeline. And like, he wasn't advocating for it. He was just predicting it because if things keep getting worse, things will keep people will have more strong reactions. And I, I don't think that is a unreasonable belief to have. You know, we've seen even wealth inequality, when wealth inequality gets worse and worse and worse, eventually you begin to see much more violent revolution. It's one of the arguments as to why rich people should not like wealth inequality because it gets bad for everybody. And and, and these things are all connected, right? Like, I, I do think that there is a, again, not we're not condoning violence, but there is a conversation to be had about what the actions we're doing now and inactions we're doing now will have impacts and, and, and how this continued level of inaction will permeate our society. It, it, like, people aren't going to keep just not doing anything as it gets worse and worse and worse. Exactly. Okay. So you're going to finish reading that book, which is super long. <laughs> so it'll probably take you a bit of time. And then I'm going to read this book that I picked up last year that I haven't touched yet called how to blow up a pipeline. It's not literally a guidebook, but it's like, it's an exploration of the question of nonviolence within the context of like the climate crisis and activism. And then we will have an extremely nuanced conversation between two middle-class white people from Ontario <laughs> about, about the question of nonviolence versus violence within, within sort of like revolutionary spheres. And it will, Perfect. 
it will not upset anybody because <laughs> why wouldn't people want to hear? I mean, I think that's a, a per- what a better way to end the show than in that than that offering to the future uh, of, you know, not the future long term, the future medium term. Is if we um, all survive. Is January 14th, 2022. Yes. You're forgetting that 222 is the angel number of manifestation. And so that what you imagine will come into being with the proper faith directed at it. I mean, forgetting implies I knew that in the first place, but that's a, a fair point. Okay. I feel like in another life, Dave is like an astrology Instagrammer. And like you secretly <laughs> have this like double life where you preach astrology to millennial women on social media and you just that's haven't what, told us that's why he pretends that's why he pretends to have uh not not understand how apps work we should thank listeners for sticking with us because this was an especially unhinged episode but <laughs> in contrast to last week where i literally timed it and we had seven minutes of environmental news this week we have like basically a full hour of it so we're finally living up to our namesake yeah yeah, yeah we definitely gave you a majority news and yeah. I would give the show honestly zero DiCaprios out of seven. If you also agree, and you would also give us zero DiCaprios on a super yacht out of seven, let us know by by giving us a, by giving us a like on on social media or a review on on Apple Podcasts.